Good morning, everyone. Welcome, welcome. Well, what a beautiful day it is today. <laughs> it's nice to be back with you after missing last week. Mm. When we, uh, whenever we uh, finish Jonah, uh, we will. Uh, I'm, I'm working uh, in a preliminary fashion on reading James and Matthew's gospel together. Sort of like seeing the, the themes of James, the themes of Matthew in James. And uh, so that should be some good discussion. So, anyway, more later on that. But um, today we're in Jonah chapter 2 and we're plodding right along <laughs> at a snail's pace. <laughs> um, but let's, so let's take a look at this just as a refresher. Uh, chapter 2 of Jonah, it reads, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Okay. So, you know, looking here, we're about at verse 6 or so uh, from the last time. And he talks about his life being redeemed from the pit, and yet he is right in the middle of it still. Um, this narrative turns from the unbroken descent of Jonah. God always knows the plight of his people. And that is so important to remember as we go through, you know, the trials and the chances of life. And it's, it, this is the verse, verse 6, if you look at verse 6 again, Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. This is the first time in the book of Jonah where Jonah says, the Lord is my God. Isn't that interesting? You know, you think about that in terms of chapter 1 and, and where, you know, everything that was going on there and how the captain of the, of the boat went down and uh, you know, got 
Jonah to arise and say, call upon your God. So this is the first time where he says, the Lord is my God. So everything in Jonah leads up to this confession. And then everything else in the, in the, in the narrative of Jonah follows from it. So this is really, though it's so brief in the text and within the scope of the book, this is a very important point that he says, oh Lord, my God. And you, so you can kind of see things turning around. And this reminds us of Thomas too, right? If, if we were to look at John uh, chapter 20, verse 28, and you don't have to turn to this, I can just read it for you. You know, Jesus says to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Very similar to Jonah. Oh, Lord, my God. And then there's Psalm 16, verse 10. So this is very similar to Jonah. And, and as I have mentioned, and if you would turn to that, Psalm 16, uh, verse 10. As I had said a uh, few weeks ago, chapter 2 with the words of Jonah are very much in line with the Psalms. It sounds, his confession, his prayer sounds just like a psalm. And so he, the psalmist in Psalm 16 verse 10 says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. And then he goes on, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I would say those two verses themselves sound an awful lot like Jesus, right? You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now read, let's take a look in the New Testament and go to Acts chapter 2 and look at Peter and Paul's sermons concerning Jesus. So we're, we're trolling in this theme here of Jonah being redeemed from the pit, himself not seeing corruption. And so Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 22, he, now this is Peter's sermon, and Peter begins in verse 22, and he says, listen everyone, Hear these words. And then he begins to talk about the passion of Christ. And he talks about the miracles and the wonders and the signs that God did through Jesus in the midst of these people as, as they know. And then he says, him, verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. 
And then he goes on and he quotes David. And he says, and, and this is what it says. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. This is very similar to Jonah. And of course, this is about Jesus, but he's also bringing us back to think about Jonah. And Jonah is right in the midst. Now, here it says... I foresaw the Lord always before my face. And Jonah mentions the temple. So the temple is, represents the Lord, you know, looking towards the temple is to look toward the Lord. And this is where he finds his comfort even while he sits in the belly of the fish in Sheol. And, you know, if you just, so then take take a look at the practical side of this for the Christian life. You know, we just had Ash Wednesday. And, you know, what a powerful thing that is to have the ashen cross on the forehead. And, you know, remember you are dust and to dust you shall return. And yet it's in the form of a cross. Even in death, we belong to the Lord. Even in death, Christ comes to us. He will not leave us. And so then think about the practical side of that to the life of faith, the life of faith that we live today in the world, facing the, the troubles of sin and the troubles of evil. And, you know, you think about all that the church faces today and the the spiritual warfare that is, that is taking place upon the church in the world. And it's easy to lose heart. It's easy to be overcome with the worries of what's gonna happen, right? And yet, these things, these, these words, the reminder from the Ashen Cross on Ash Wednesday is that even as bad as things could get, you know, and that's what we do, right? Whenever we worry about something, we rehash it and it gets worse and worse and worse and pretty soon there's no way out, right? In your head, you're like, oh, I can see exactly how things can go and it's gonna be terrible. Even if things were to get as bad as we think they could or we imagine they could, Christ will pull his church out of it. You know, the Lord blesses. And then you can think about that even in terms of the personal aspect of being a Christian in the world and raising children and facing the struggles of, of life with whatever it may be. The Lord will preserve you. And, and I think that's, for me, I think that is so important to remember that these kinds of things with Jonah and with Jesus, the words of Peter and his sermon here, 
Christ will take care of you. He will draw you out of the evil in the world and all of the uncertainties of life. He will take care of your family. He will take care of your children. Christ is faithful. And so when you think about the words and the prayer of Jonah in this text in chapter 2, it's the Lord's faithfulness. And he knows it. And then you can look at this later perhaps. Well, um, let's just let's do it since we're in Acts. Go to Acts 13, 34 to 37. So then we move to Paul. Acts 13, 34 to 37. So he says, let's see, maybe back up to verse 33. He says, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus. I will give you the, the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So more of that same kind of thing. So in verse 7, so back to Jonah then, Jonah chapter 2. He mentions the temple. So Jonah 2 verse 7 says, When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. So temple life was very important, and Jonah is drawn to that. And so today, in our, in our struggles of life, in our fears, worries, so on and so forth, we look to Jesus, the temple not made with hands, and then he gives us a place also, right? And that place is the altar, the Eucharist, where we hear the gospel. And our hearts are cheered by that. And, you know, one of the beautiful things about the ministry in the Lutheran Church is the importance that we put on homebound visits, hospital visits, and as, as we have done and continue to do here, we go with the Eucharist. So even though people may not be able to physically get back to the altar, the altar comes to them, right? And this is because of Jesus. So with Jonah, he has to go to the temple 
But for us, Jesus comes to us. And Jesus and the place is wherever the word and the sacraments are, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, wherever the sacraments are given according to Christ's institution. There you have it, right? And so what a comfort that is for us as we journey in this life. And there is some, some language along the lines of this too. Um, you can jot down Psalm 11 verse 4 and Psalm 27 verse 4. And Psalm 27 is beautiful. It's one of my go-to psalms. Psalm 27, right? You all probably know this psalm because of its particular beauty and comfort. It begins in verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? What a comforting verse, right? And then you go down to I have the whole thing, I'm, my goodness, right? But then you go down to verse four. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So there it is. Just as with Jonah. Inquiring in the temple. And then the last verse of the psalm this gets to that theme I often talk about, the slowness of God. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And we've talked about that before, how difficult that is to wait, right? But in a sense, that's what Jonah is doing. He is caught in the midst of the throes of death. And he knows he is in a tough situation. But because of his temple life, he is recalled back to that. And the temple life communicates something, the mercies of the Lord. Yes, Carol. Your version, wait on the Lord. Yes. Mine is wait for the Lord. Okay. Which seems quite a bit different. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, uh, I, what is it? Four. Four? Well, I don't know what the Hebrew says, but see if I can glean anything from the Septuagint, maybe. Footnote online, it says, um, wait for the Lord, faith encouraging faith. Okay. Okay. Um, so, you know, now, when your Old Testament is a translation off the Hebrew, the Masoretic text, the, the Greek, the Septuagint is a little different. And as I've said before, the interesting thing is, like St. Paul or Peter, when they quote from the Old Testament, they are often quoting from the Greek Septuagint because it was so common that, you know, they knew it. Um, what, this, what this says, so what the Greek, the Greek translation of this last verse is, 
uh, remain on the Lord or in the Lord? Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the beautiful things about that is the Greek word is hupa, hupameno. And this word, so I'll, I'll just give this to you here. So this is a prefix, hupa. So it's like an over, it's, it's like kind of coming over, much like the presence of God coming over the the tab, the ta- right, the Ark of the Covenant, the, you know, the Holy of Holies, the mercy seat coming in over in the, in the cloud of incense. So you have this concept of coming over and resting, okay? So it's, it's kind of a temple prefix. And then this word, meno, uh, the noun means uh, like a, a room or a physical place, yeah. So when, he, when it says there, remain in or on the Lord, it's saying, let, let the Lord's presence come over you and just abide in his room of mercy. So to wait on the Lord is not like we would interpret it in English, where I'm just out in the middle of, you know, out in the middle of the crazy world, vulnerable. (laughs) But it actually means that we are out here in the world, but we are canopied by the Lord's presence and protection. So while we wait, we're not alone and we're not left to the fiery darts of the devil, but we're covered, we're loved. And I think that's so important for us in, in the world full of, of worries to know that Christ has you. He has you nestled right into his arms and into his care. And that ashen cross from Ash Wednesday is a beautiful depiction of that. Yes, to dust you are and to dust you shall return, but Christ has you in his arms the whole way. And even when you breathe your last breath, you are Christ's and he will take you in. So, This is something that resonates with Jonah as he utters those words in verse 7. So when he thinks about the temple, he's not thinking about it just as, you know, only a physical structure and he's got to go and do his bit. It's the faithfulness of the Lord. Then in verse 8, when he talks about all things are vanity, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Um, He's basically saying it's all vanity, and the word means mist or vapor. So the, the idols 
are just like vapor. Though humanity might regard them as something important, they're nothing. And then you have this notion of mercy. So what Jonah is doing is he's explaining why he will be rescued, whereas the pagan who regards worthless idols will not. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. And this word for mercy in Hebrew is, is, it also means steadfast love. And so the way this is used in the Hebrew, the, the Hebrew word is hesed, and this is used for a person who is in need or has high anxiety and are asked to be dealt with in this fashion. So there are some, there are some verses, you can jot these down, particularly in the books of Moses. So this concept of mercy is found in Genesis 21, 23, and 20, Genesis 24, 49, Genesis 47, 29, and then Exodus 34, 6. Uh, the last one is Exodus 34, 6. And let me look at that Exodus 1. Exodus 34, 6. Oh yeah, this is the new tablets. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So there you have it. It's, you know, such a beautiful thing. And so what one does not do, so he, the, the Hebrew word is, is hesed, for mercy or steadfast love. And what one does not do in hesed is to forsake someone else. So there's, with this concept of mercy or steadfast love is also complete faithfulness. And there's, a couple passages in Ruth, Ruth 1 verse 8 and Ruth 3 verse 10. And you could take a look at that if you want. To, um, it's, it's after Judges in the, uh, in the Old Testament. So this would be Ruth 1 verse 8. So Naomi uses this in reference to her, her two daughters-in-law. In Ruth 1 verse 8, she says, Go return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. So this is the concept of mercy or steadfast love where there's faithfulness. You don't forsake someone. And then also in Ruth 3 verse 10, 
Verse 8, now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet, and he said, who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Then he said, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, and that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. So there's the concept of this hesed or mercy or steadfast love. She stayed with him. She didn't forsake him or leave him. She stayed. And so this concept of mercy in Jonah 2 verse 8, with God, his mercy is such that he doesn't forsake Jonah And then the flip side, of course, is Jonah returns to the Lord. And this is is what the Lord wants, right? And this is why the practice of confession and absolution is so central for us. And if you're one of those people, like sometimes we, we may think this way in the midst of our own sins, we'll confess our sins and we'll say, are we really forgiven? Did Jesus really die for my horrible sins? I mean, I know he died for all these good people around me that, you know, their sins are petty, but mine are horrible. Did he really die for mine? Yes. Return to the Lord. The Lord will not forsake you. And so confession and absolution is just that, right? Returning to the Lord. This is what we see with Jonah chapter 2. And this is why... Our theology is so beautiful and comforting because grace really does abound. You did your horrible sins? Go confess and receive absolution. They're forgiven. You rest within the mercies of Christ. And this is what we see with Jonah, right? From the beginning, heading in the other direction, getting on a boat, The whole bit being cast into the sea, swallowed by a big fish. There he is. He sits within the throes of Hades and Sheol. And what does he do? He returns to the Lord. Why? Because he knows that this concept of hesed, mercy or steadfast love, is that God is faithful. God does not leave us. And that's, too, why the concept of repentance in the New Testament is to have a change of mind, to return, to turn about. Does that mean, then, that the Naomi's daughter-in-law were both followers, or, you know, that they had given up their, whatever their pagan god was, and were followers, and she says, come. Yes. I want him to deal with you kindly. I want him to keep you in the true faith. Is that basically what she's saying? Uh, yes, I think there is an element to that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it is powerful in that way, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, good point. Well, that would be a nice blessing to get from your mother in law, I guess. Yeah, no, no, I understand, yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> yep, that's right. Um, let's see here. Okay, so when we, when we look here at the, at the end of chapter 2, he ends by saying, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. So his sacrifice comes with the voice of thanksgiving. So he recognizes that it's God's faithfulness that absolves him. It's not his outward act. But it's his sacrifice is one of praise and thanksgiving. And we do the same thing. Um, uh, we, um, I don't think we actually do it in our divine service here, but if you look at the divine services in our hymnals, there is a sacrifice of praise uh, after Holy Communion. Um, and so, you know, now here today, uh, we do, have, we do have one sacrifice, and it's the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving for what the Lord has done through his cross and passion. You don't get it? <laughs> it's a sacrifice of praise. It's, it's just, you know, in Lutheran theology, we say that there is one sacrifice that remains, and it's just the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, where, you know, in response to God's gifts, we give thanksgiving. Yeah. I don't, think, I don't see that as a sacrifice. I see that as a. Yeah. It's it is a sacrifice. I see that as a. Just a response of. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a sacrifice in that regard, right? That's what right. Well, and that's. Sacrifice, as I think of it, is not praising Yeah, and that's a good point, too, you know, with the gospel. It just keeps abounding with more and more, right? Yeah, You're not giving up. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand. Yeah. Yep. But then, so the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. That's pretty wild, isn't it? Some good language. I mean, just pick, right? Just picture all that entails with that, right? You know, it's like, um, you know. Uh, Jonah being covered with slime and you know it's like that would be quite a picture <laughs> um, what's that spit him out yes yeah that's more palatable right <laughs> um, let's so Yeah. Giving at Thanksgiving in a pretty horrible situation. Yes. He's saved, you know, from drowning, but he's in the inside of the fish. So it's kind of a good reminder of, like, it wasn't like, oh, God just swooped him in with his nice boat and got him. Like, it was maybe not, it was kind of traumatic. It was traumatic. Yeah. And physiologically. Yes, right. Yes. 
Yes. So if you're in your stomach, you get vomit. Yes. Okay, that's good. All right, I can appreciate that from a nurse. Yep. Nope, that's, I can appreciate that. That's the way it goes. You get spit out from your mouth. Yes. And as we know, as unpleasant as it is, uh, as I had my norovirus last week, I know, um, vomiting is violent, right? Now think about that in terms of, this is like Hades and Sheol, right? So the fish is like hell and it violently spews Jonah out. Jonah is a foreign substance. See, that's us in Christ. You rest in his grace. So even in the midst of your failures and your sins and your struggles, because you are Christ's, you are a foreign object to hell. It cannot take you in. That's powerful. And so now go to John's Gospel. Near the end, this is the resurrection scene. So chapter 21. John chapter 21. Let's let's just read this and then we'll we'll talk about it. John chapter 21, beginning at the first verse. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up, dragged the net to land, full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. 
Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, when you think about that, there is a lot cooking there. For one thing, Jesus, his passion had taken place. He died, rose on the third day. He couldn't be contained in hell, right? He went down in victory. And then the disciples, not knowing what to do, feel like, well, things are never going to be the same again. I guess we'll go back to what we used to do. I guess we'll go back to fishing. And they go back to fishing, and what is it but toil and hardship and the same thing they experienced at the beginning, right? When Jesus comes to them and say, hey, says, hey, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So Jesus, in a very interesting move, is on the seashore cooking fish. And what do they do? But they eat it. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Right? Remember those words? Death has been swallowed up in victory. So the fish that represents Hades and hell in the book of Jonah, because of the victory of Christ, now they sit and they eat it. Death has no power. Hell has no power. And, you know, this is interesting, too. This is something different, but it says there in verse 11 that there were 153 different kinds of fish. Well, in those days, in terms of categorizing and knowing how many different kinds of fish there are, like if you look at, you know, annals, there were 153 different kinds of fish known to humanity at that time. So the fact that they bring in 153 fish means that the gospel goes out to all nations, every different place. Isn't that cool? So it's, you know, that's a very subtle way of John giving the Great Commission. Kind of cool, huh? Yeah. There weren't by any means 153 different types of fish normally in that one little lake. Right. Yeah, it's all they knew, though. Like, you know, you got somebody out there going, okay, this is a pike, you know. Okay, this is a northern, you know. Call <laughs> crappie. Yeah, I know crappie. Write that, that one down. I know crappie, you know. But obviously, right, there are far more, but in those days, that's all they had categorized was 153 different kinds. Yeah. Well, I think it's just a point. I think that the evangelist is just making the point that, you know, there's one of every kind. And the gospel net brings everybody in. You know, it's for everyone, right? That's what we've been talking about. I mean, first it says that, well, in, uh, where is it? 
verse 4. Uh, Jesus was standing at the shore, but the disciples didn't know him. He was a stranger. Yeah. He says, to catch anything, no. He says, throw it on the other side. Well, why in the world, if they didn't recognize Jesus, would they follow the instructions of some man <laughs> on the shore? I know, it's puzzling, isn't it? You know, so what, what can we say about that? I don't know if you heard what she said, but you know, it's, she said it's puzzling that they don't recognize him on the shore for who he is, but he says to them, cast the net on the other side, and they, they listen to him. Yeah. Um, um, well, I think it's kind of interesting because you, you think they, they've lost their leader at that point, and so they're returning to their old ways. Um, you can see how easily they could start following somebody else potentially at that point. Yep. Goodness, it's Jesus standing on the shore and directing. Good point. Um, but maybe it's kind of speaking to the vulnerability of like, they hear a voice, it, they don't even know whose it is and they're willing to. Mm, interesting, yeah. With, with Jesus gone, it's so easy for them to fall in, back into their old habits and to listen to other voices. Yeah. Lord, what the heck? Yeah. We didn't, we didn't catch anything anyway. Yeah. It was also like when they first started following him, though, because I just talked to you last week after I read my devotions. I'm like, why would they, some strange guy comes walking along and says, come, follow me. Why would they leave their profession, their family? I mean, like, wasn't James and John standing with, working with their dad? Mm -hmm. And they just up and even followed him. Yeah. So maybe it's kind of along those same lines. Maybe, I don't want to say like charisma or mm -hmm. magnetism, but maybe there is There's something. Yes, the Holy Spirit. Yeah. It's yeah. pulling them. Yeah. And that's, yeah, go ahead. Well, I think we have to realize that there was probably a camaraderie among these fishermen. Mm -hmm. And. Maybe this was the guy who was out four hours earlier. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They are taking this advice, and it isn't until John yeah. goes, duh! <laughs> this is the Lord, that's, yeah. well, that's, that's all very good. I mean. It was also the wrong time of the day to fish. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if nothing else, you can certainly see that in spite of our own human flaws and weaknesses, which we see with the disciples again, right? Don't go back to your old profession. What, did you forget the last few years and everything Jesus taught you and told you? Come on, you know. But in spite of their weaknesses and their falterings, Christ is faithful. He remains faithful. He strengthens us. He continues to guide us and point us in the right direction. And what a comfort that is, too. Well, didn't he send them out to fish when he called them, at least some of them? He said, go out, and to go back out in the deep and catch. So when he did it again, only in the shallow water, maybe it rang a bell and said, oh, wait a minute. That's how Jesus called them. Right. That's, I do think there's an element of that in this text. Like, they're going back to what they know, and he's recalling them back to just those very same things of what happened 
earlier, yes. So let's go then back to Jonah and we can begin to leap into chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So, isn't that something? Jonah had to go through all that. The sailors benefited because they came, they confessed the Lord on deck. Now we're back to, we're back to the beginning again. The Lord came to Jonah the second time. But in verse 2, so the words begin again just like at the beginning of the book. But in verse 2 here in chapter 3, the words are a little different. In chapter 1, verse 2, it literally says, preach to it. So chapter 1, verse 2, God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach to it. Preach against it. That would work too, yes. Yep. And, oh yeah, in 1 verse 2 it says preach against it. And in 3 verse 2 it says preach to it. Proclaim to it, that's, that's a faithful rendering of it. Yep. This says what is the call out against it. Yeah. Call out against it? Yes. Yeah. So what are we trying to say? What's the difference in Mm. Yeah, um, I'm not sure. You know, that's a really good. Um, why is it changed? Did they change in Nineveh? Did they change their status? Yeah. So okay, let's think about this. Why would why would the Lord change it? Um, Maybe, so one can only wonder at this point, right? It's open for discussion, right? Um, I mean, has Nineveh changed that they are more accepting of it? Or maybe Jonah now is more accepting of it. Or maybe it's how Jonah is hearing the message. What's that? It's how Jonah is hearing the message. Because okay. thinking really negatively of Nineveh mm-hmm. at the beginning of this. And so maybe he's hearing... Go preach against it because they're so wicked, you know, because it says because its wickedness has come up before me. Yes. Um, so maybe that's how it's hearing God's message. Whereas in the second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and claim to the message I give to you. It's a little bit more positive. Like, it is. And so I just wonder if the way he's hearing God's word is different because his heart has changed. It's not quite as hard as well. Yeah. That's a good thought. I think that's right. And you know, to preach, to preach the message, the message has not changed, but it's, it's almost like now Jonah, who him, he has just experienced the Lord's mercy himself. And that does make a difference, right? When we experience the mercies of the Lord for us, it does shape the way we then exist and go about life, right? And 
especially if the Lord's mercy to us is fresh in our minds, then it's also, it emanates to our neighbor, right? If we're not feeling so much like we needed the grace and we're just trolling along doing our thing, it's easier to be judging, right? Or maybe a little unmerciful to others. But boy, if the mercy of Christ is fresh for us, it's vibrant from us to others. Because that first reading of it is kind of like he's saying, go point your finger at them, basically. Yeah. Um, and this way, it's more of like offering a message. Yes. Not pointing a finger, but like extending his hand is kind of more of how I read that. Yes. And that's kind of, you can feel more like you, more that way when the, and somebody's hand is reached out to you versus, you know, it's kind of like somebody does this to you and you go back to the next person. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, think about it. Like, you know, Jonah, Jonah's on the seashore, and he's still got the slime from the guts of the fish on him, right? So, like, he probably smells funny and looks funny, and, you know, and he's, all of it's just, like, right there, like, okay, you know my mercy. Doesn't that sound so good for, for them, too? <laughs> so yeah very good then in verse 3 so Jonah arose so here's resurrection language again and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city a three day journey in extent There it is, a three-day journey in extent. So this is like the, the time from, right, passion to resurrection, from death, from death to resurrection. And Jonah begins, began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now notice in verse 3 that it is the word of the Lord that sets everything in motion. Look at it carefully. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So it's, right, it's always the word of the Lord that sets things in motion. And when the Lord's word sets things in motion good things happen, right? I mean, it could be rough, tough things too, like in the Old Testament when people are overthrown or, um, you know, the people of God go into, the, into captivity. But ultimately it's for good, right? The Lord means to bring repentance. So he goes and cries out, <clears throat> and says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And it's just like the fish, the three days journey. It's like going through hell again. Uh, he's in his first day of walk. And this parallels, by the way, Elijah's one day. Uh, 
in 1 Kings 19, verse 4. Let me read that for you. So Elijah, Elijah escapes from Jezebel, and it's, it begins in the first verse. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that he arose, there's the arise language, and ran for his life and went to Beersheba which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. And that now verse four, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough. Now Lord, take my life for I am no better than my father's. And this is worth talking about next week. The, Luther's concept of vocation is tied to a, a more fundamental a teaching of Luther's, which is the theology of the cross. And he says that our vocations are earthly and our vocations are meant for others. And this is where cross-bearing comes into play. So all of you mothers that are raising children and sometimes you shake your head and you think what in the world is going on and you know this doesn't seem to be going right and I don't know what I'm going to do these kids are going to be a wreck when they you know when they get into adulthood just remember this is cross bearing <laughs> and good will come out of it but I'll talk more about that next week okay <laughs> but but the first day the first day's journey is, is a struggle. And uh, so we'll, we'll pick it up next week at verse four and we'll keep going, okay? So let's close with the collect. All right, let us pray. O almighty and eternal God, we implore you to direct, sanctify, and govern our hearts and bodies in the ways of your laws and the works of your commandments that through your mighty protection, both now and ever, we may be preserved in body and soul. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace.